Welcome to the History of Chemistry podcast. I'm Steve Cohen, your host, and this is episode 58, Smoke Signals, which returns to a variety of observations leading almost up to the creation of environmental chemistry. Thanks to those who already support this podcast. Support the continuation of this podcast at Patreon. The website is www.patreon.com forward slash the history of chemistry. Episode 49 was our last discussion of issues related to what would later become environmental chemistry. We continue the observations to just about when environmental chemistry coalesces into a recognizable field. An important event in the history of environmental chemistry took place in the American port of Texas City on Galveston Bay in the Gulf of Mexico. A retired and refurbished American ship was assigned to the Compagnie Générale Transatlantique, or the French Line, after World War II, to help reconstruct France after the war's devastation. In 1947, the ship was known as the SS Grandcamp and was loaded with a variety of goods and chemicals as cargo for France. There was twine, agricultural crops such as tobacco, cotton, and peanuts, some ammunition, industrial machinery, but a whole lot of ammonium nitrate, over 2,000 tons, a compound used in both fertilizer and explosives. The ammonium salt was treated to avoid caking from moisture by addition of clay, rosin, petroleum jelly, and wax, then put into paper bags. Storage was at higher temperatures, and the longshoremen loading the vessel noted that the bags of nitrate were notably warm. The ship was moored. At around 8 in the morning of April 16, 1947, there was an observation of smoke in the cargo hold of the SS Grandcamp, and the longshoremen poured some water on the small fire and sprayed two fire extinguishers on it. The cargo hold filled with smoke anyway, and the longshoremen were ordered off the ship. Instead, the ship captain refused to use more water so as not to ruin the goods, and he sealed the hatches to fill the hold with steam to smother the flames. Chemically, ammonium nitrate is a strong oxidant, which neutralizes the steam's anti-flammable effect. In fact, the steam plus ammonium nitrate may have even made the fire worse. The ammonium nitrate may have converted to nitrous oxide, N2O, and increased the heat in the cargo area. By 8.30 a.m., the hold's pressure blew out the hatches, releasing a pillar of yellowish-orange fumes, the typical color of nitrogen dioxide. The event attracted onlookers by the shore, a typical show, as well as the Republic Oil Refining Company firefighters and Texas City firefighters. At 9.12 a.m., the ship exploded, destroying everything within 600 meters of the ship, as well as a thousand buildings in the area, including a Monsanto plant. Naturally, there was airborne shrapnel, including the Grand Comp's anchor. 
burning twine from the cargo set off more blazes. Two airplanes aloft nearby were blown down. Windows in the city of Galveston, 16 kilometers away, were destroyed, and even Houston had windows blown out. People in Louisiana, 400 kilometers away, felt the shake. A ship moored 200 meters away, the SS High Flyer, which itself had nearly a thousand tons of ammonium nitrate with the remainder sulfur, was set free and drifted across the bay amidst burning oil on the surface. Eventually, it bumped up against another ship, the SS Wilson B. Keene. The High Flyer's crew had to abandon ship except for two crew members who returned to search for injured. They found that the High Flyer's cargo was now on fire, but their report was ignored in the utter chaos in the bay. Late in the evening, tugboats tried but failed to move the High Flyer. By the next day, the High Flyer also exploded in an even more powerful blast, destroying the Wilson B. Keene. Chunks of red-hot steel flew up and fell onto Texas City, causing more fires. A propeller was hurled so hard it fell over 1,500 meters away. Galveston was covered with oily smoke leaving a residue everywhere. And I haven't even mentioned the 581 known deaths, nor the thousands of injuries. The original cause of the disaster is unknown, but some claim maybe it was someone ignoring a no-smoking sign in an era when everyone smoked cigarettes. This 1947 event is considered to be the worst industrial accident ever in the USA. Eventually, there was a class-action lawsuit claiming negligence in handling the ammonium nitrate, but the U.S. courts rejected the suit. You can find videos online of the destruction. The ultimate result was a new awareness of environmental hazards of materials with regulations affecting their handling. Let's look at another type of smoke common at the time, this time in Los Angeles in California. The existence of smog was known at least from the beginning of the 20th century, as is the word smog, which is first attested to in London from 1905. One day in 1903, there was so much industrial emissions that the locals thought there was a solar eclipse. So the city council did adopt some primitive anti-smoke regulations, which were promptly overtaken by more industrialization as the city grew. This industrialization only picked up speed during World War II, with weather records revealing that atmospheric clarity declined through 1943. The smoke in Los Angeles got to be such a problem that the county health office declared it to be a, quote, serious menace, unquote, to airplane flights. Even farmers began complaining that their crops were getting bleached or discolored, which was not observed elsewhere in the USA. Automobile tire companies found that their rubber deteriorated at a higher speed than other parts of the USA. The L.A. County Board of Supervisors created a Smoke and Fumes Commission, 
which recommended banning dense smoke emissions by 1945, and the board also created the Director of Air Pollution Control. Generally, the smog problem in the 1940s was thought to be from industrial air pollution, that is, smoke. In 1945, the county health officer, Hubert Swarthout, though, pointed out that train engines, diesel engines, backyard trash burning, and even sawmill scrap burning contributed. He also named the enclosing mountains, poor winds, and temperature inversions as factors. A Los Angeles Times newspaper expose included recommendations from pollution pundit Raymond Tucker, who spread the blame around as Swartout did. He suggested a countywide pollution department to enforce laws. The County Board of Supervisors agreed with Tucker's ideas, despite opposition from, you guessed it, oil companies and the business sector, and it became law in October 1947. But as you have heard, precisely what the county air pollution control districts should be controlling wasn't exactly obvious. Smoke? Trash burning? Diesel exhaust? So a Dutch chemist, Aria Hagen-Smit, at Caltech in 1948, began researching plants damaged by smog. Hagen-Smit was previously a flavor and perfume chemist, so he was exquisitely sensitive to various odors, and he noticed that the locals still smelled a curious chlorine odor even after new pollution controls were enacted. Hagen-Smit was also aware that northeastern U.S. pollution was mostly sulfur dioxides from coal and oil, but Los Angeles pollution was different and caused eye irritation. By 1950, Hagen-Smit's nose pointed the way to ozone, the allotrope of O2 oxygen, with the molecular formula O3. Plants exposed to ozone showed similar discoloration as L.A. smog. Within a few years, he showed that ozone also caused damage to construction materials, respiratory distress, and eye irritation. Ozone also caused the damage to rubber in tires. In 1952, he reported that ozone was the problem. It was not an automobile emission, or from trash burning, or from factory exhaust, but created as in atmospheric chemical reactions with light as an active participant. That is, photochemically created ozone did the damage. All the hydrocarbons from refineries, plus partially burned car exhaust, combined with the nitrogen oxide impurities created during combustion, whether in engines or in trash dumps. The reaction goes like this. Residual nitrogen and oxygen in the car engine creates NO gas. In the car exhaust, the NO combines with oxygen gas to make NO2, which has a distinct reddish-brown color, which you may see on smoggy days over a city. In sunlight in the atmosphere, the NO2 is broken down by light into NO plus an oxygen atom. The oxygen atom combines with an oxygen molecule O2 to make O3, ozone. Plus, the hydrocarbon fuel vapor in the air combines with any free oxygen atoms 
to make the free radicals of a hydrocarbon plus an OH. These are very reactive. The result was ozone. By 1955, ozone levels reached 0.68 parts per million in the atmosphere in downtown Los Angeles. As a comparison, the maximum permitted level in American workplaces is currently 0.1 parts per million, so this outside air was seven times worse than the current legal limit. Businesses freaked out and pointed their fingers at the ozone in the stratosphere, saying it descended to sea level and was blown on shore. Hachen Schmidt stood his ground, noting the inversion layer blocked descent of ozone. By 1954, an oil company study found that Catalina Island had low ozone concentrations, disproving the faulty ozone descent idea. Local residents were so used to burning trash in their backyards that they too freaked out and objected to banning trash burning. It took till 1958 to get that banned, and the citrus farmers of the day used smudge pots to keep frost away from valuable crops. Smudge pots burned old tires, trash, or used motor oil. It took time to convince them that plain old heaters would do as well. You may have heard of the famous London fogs, which were really nasty smogs. I mentioned that the word smog itself is from London. There was another nasty smog of historic proportions that killed 4,000 inhabitants there in 1952. The governor of California at that time asked Arnold Beckman of pH meter and spectrophotometer fame to lead a committee for air pollution regulations to prevent a similar occurrence in Los Angeles. By 1953, the committee suggested one, cutting hydrocarbon vape vapor leaks from refineries and fueling. Estimates were 450,000 liters of gasoline were evaporating every day. Only by 1978 did plastic sleeves on gasoline pumps become common, though. Two, creating standards for automobile exhaust. Three, burning propane, not diesel, in trucks and buses. Four, slowing the growth of polluting industries. Five, no open trash burning. Six, establishing mass transportation systems. The French-American mechanical and chemical engineer Eugène Houdry invented a catalytic converter to break down some of these noxious gases from cars in 1956. The result was carbon dioxide and water. A finely divided platinum, palladium, or rhodium powder is the active ingredient. But the petroleum companies said that Houdry's system wouldn't work because of tetraethyl lead additive in gasoline. Lead poisons the catalyst, rendering it ineffective. So Houdry's catalytic converter never gained traction at this point in our environmental chemical history, and leaded gasoline continued to be sold worldwide. As a science fiction aside, even though there was no international large environmental movement in the 1950s, the idea of conservation was certainly known and growing. You might want to read Frederick Pohl and Cyril Cornbluth's novel, *The Space Merchants*, from 1952, originally serialized as *Gravy Planet* in the magazine *Galaxy Science Fiction*. 
Even back then, the authors tackle overpopulation, scarcity of resources, and the conservation movement, or in futuristic slang, the Konzis. Among other coinages, the book is the first to use R and D as an informal way of saying research and development. Let's turn now to another environmental and legal issue, the Food Additives Amendment of 1958 in the USA. By 1938, the United States Legal Code included the Food, Drugs, and Cosmetic Act of 1938. The idea was to prohibit interstate commerce of adulterated and misbranded food, drugs, devices, and cosmetics. But by the 1950s, there was beginning to be concern over carcinogenic chemicals which consumers might be exposed to. At that time, the medical hypothesis was that cancer was induced by environmental chemicals. So, Congressman John Delaney from New York State introduced the following amendment, stating, quote, "The Secretary of the Food and Drug Administration shall not approve for use." In food, any chemical additive found to induce cancer in man, or after tests, found to induce cancer in animals. Unquote. There was an exemption for long-standing existing additives, generally recognized as safe, but new additives must be tested before approval for use. There was also an exemption for fresh foods. Also note, there was nothing in the law. At the time, restricting additives that cause other problems, like reproductive, neurological, or immune disorders. Current medical research indicates that many cancers are not environmentally based. Also, as written, the Delaney clause has logical problems. For example, sassafras tea and some spices have the natural compound safrole, which is known to be a carcinogen. So it may never be added to root beer soft drinks, even though it exists naturally in existing products for human consumption. Or take that beverage that seems to lubricate societies around the world, coffee. Even though millions of people drink it every day, the majority of tested chemicals that appear in coffee solutions are carcinogenic. The Delaney clause gives no weight to the toxicology approach of. The dose makes the poison. The pervasive fear of chemicals in food itself is a pseudo-scientific problem that I may address in a future episode. The Delaney clause was first cited in November 1959. The American Secretary of Health, Education, and Welfare, Arthur Fleming, warned the public about cranberries with the herbicide aminotriazole, just then considered carcinogenic. The warning came just before the American holiday of Thanksgiving, which, if you've ever had an American Thanksgiving dinner, includes cranberries and cranberry sauce as a mainstay. This event is often considered to be the first modern public health scare over food additives. In the meantime, we've covered some public issues that led to the field of environmental chemistry 
which will soon become real, although not quite yet in our chemical history. Right now, these environmental problems were generally considered to be local-based, not of international worry, and certainly not enough to warrant an entire branch of chemistry. In our next episode, we extend our chemistry of DNA to that of RNA, equally important in modern biochemistry. Until then, brave the elements! Thank you for listening to the History of Chemistry podcast.